November the 11th, right? Yeah, November the 11th. We're in lesson 47 from Matthew. We begin chapter 6 today. Try to cover the first four verses if we can do that. Can I help you? You're right there. We'll cover the first four uh, verses and we look back on just a moment on uh, what we've accomplished because I want you to keep in mind here the full picture here. We're still, you know, don't forget this is the, the Sermon on the Mount. That's where we are. That's still what we're looking at here. Christ is teaching. We looked at these six antitheses that uh, finished up the latter part of chapter 5 in Matthew where we looked at murder, adultery, divorce, oaths and vows, and then uh, revenge, and then love and hate was our last lesson there. Christ's overall theme there, of course, he was teaching about the law, but we had to emphasize what the uh, rabbinic uh, customs and traditions had done to the understanding of the law, and that's exactly what Christ was trying to focus upon and get people to see that what you believe about this, what you've been taught, what your religious leaders have been teaching you, uh, for lack of a, of a better term and just to keep it southern, ain't right, okay? So he was making it plain and making it clear to them. So we listen now regarding Christ's teaching about the practice of the law. So now he's going to go back since he's clarified how they should be thinking about this in terms of what the Old Testament actually said, what the intent was behind the law regarding those six things that we just finished studying about. Now he's going to talk about a couple of things, three things actually in our passages that deal with how you live this out, how you practice this. And those three things that he's going to talk about, we'll cover the first one today, is giving, praying, and fasting. And we'll do at least one lesson on each of those as we get going here. So, I've got the privilege this morning of standing up here and talking to you about giving. All right, everybody got their checkbooks with them this morning? Well, he's going to talk to us about the condition of the heart. Once again, we go back to that. That's what this is about. This is about change in the inner person that allows us to understand these in a right kind of way. And that's what he wants to do. So we'll again be challenged to look within our heart about how we understand what Christ is teaching us and going to teach us here regarding giving. You know, there were a lot of poor people in that day. A lot of poor people. Uh, not a lot of rich people, talking about in, in Christ's day. And those who had their means... Uh, and had their daily needs met, were still, for the most part, kind of a hand-to-mouth, you know, daily preparation kind of, of, of existence, you know, agrarian societies for the most part. And it varied from city to city based on the type of uh, economic enterprises were available to them there, you know. Certainly they had fishermen, you know, and people who had different trades and uh, did different kinds of things, of course. But for the masses... You were talking about people uh, who were literally, you know, hand to mouth. That's what they were. I mean, it was do that work that day, provide for your family from your resources that day, whatever for the most part. So there were a lot of poor people. There were a lot of opportunities for people to give. 
And there were a lot of opportunities, quite frankly, to be seen giving, all right, which is what Christ is going to deal with here. And the attitude that uh, people have, even in his day, when they chose to give or meet particular needs. Christ is going to focus on the, the outward or the appearance, if you will, of a formal righteousness within us. All right? He's been talking about an inner moral righteousness. Again, changing the heart. Well, how does that work itself out? And how do we keep that in place? The Scriptures are going to tell us here in a little bit to do things in secret. Okay? And then we'll look at Scriptures that tell us about how our example how we live out our faith. The Bible's full of scriptures that tell us to do that. So what's the balance? Okay? And you'll see that it has to do with how you think about these things. How your heart is prepared, in this case specifically, to give. And to be a giver. So we look in chapter 6 as we begin in verse 1. And he begins with a warning He gets our attention with a definite, a specific warning. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by men. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Let's go to the end just for a minute. Do we do what we do? Do we give? Do we serve in any capacity with the idea of not losing our reward? Is that even in our mind? Many times, and you might think, well, maybe it shouldn't be there initially. I'm not concerned about a reward, all right? But there is a sense in which we should be concerned about our reward. Because there is a reward to those who serve in obedience, who give in this case in obedience, and they give in the right attitude. They give because they're motivated by love. We're to display that. Now, only God knows what's going on inside the heart. I say that, and at the same time, we know, surely we know of examples where it's rather obvious why somebody might be giving or involved in a a benevolent enterprise or whatever, because they want the attention. Their comments betray them. Their further actions betray them. And it truly brings brings shame, and it, it, it makes the what would normally be a uh, a noticeable and legitimate uh, act of goodness, which we're encouraged to do, as you well know, it makes it suspect. And it causes people to question, if you will, the motive of that person who might be openly claiming to do what they're doing for the cause of Christ or for the purpose of Christ. And, of course, we know that we can't be the judge of a person's heart But we can read and understand the Word, and in some cases, just as Christ does here, warn people about that. Why are you doing what you're doing? And he says plainly here, beware, a specific Greek word that means literally be careful. And it means in in an intensified kind of way that this is something you really need to give attention to. So we would assume that when people give, and they give for the wrong reasons, and they give in a way that makes their actions suspect, that there's a potential there for danger. It's not just about losing your own reward. It's about the example that you're setting as a believer. 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed. It couldn't be more clear. And it is important because Christ is again speaking of uh, when he says beware of something that should be, he says, a continual process. That's what comes out of the original language. Something that's done consciously. Consciously. Know it. Be aware of it. Know of its implications. A false righteousness is dangerous. Anytime we do something in a, I guess you could say, a religiously benevolent way that brings attention not, not just on us, but on the Christ that we serve, certainly must be genuine, right? Genuine in its presentation, genuine in its intent. It also creates an opportunity uh, for self-deception. Some people, as we say, believe their own lies. They don't deal with their heart. And they do, uh, if they were honest, they would have to admit that they were giving, in this case, and I'll make my references to giving, they were giving for the, for the wrong reasons, whatever, whether they're giving to the church or giving to the needs of others or whatever. There can also be a deliberate deception, believe it or not, in the hearts of people. We know people like that. We've seen examples of that. People who deliberately deceive. These are characteristics of false prophets. That's what they do. They have a different motivation. The Bible would indicate on most cases it's either for money or for sexual favors. That's what the scriptures would teach. It's an ugly thing, is it not? And yet people seek to deceive others in that realm. They literally use deception as a tool and we know that Satan himself thrives in that area that's what he does he deceives so we can conclude that the impact on others can be and is damaging we see it constantly we see it as certain TV preachers get exposed and so forth or even people that that we know Christ speaks out strongly against religious deception in the 23rd chapter of Matthew here, we've referred to it several times as he's brought the actions and the, uh, the heart condition of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, as he's brought that to light. We make reference to chapter 23 because he's going to go off on them when we get there, like I say, in a couple of years. So Christ applies this warning for each of these three things where he talks about giving and he talks about praying, and he talks about fasting. How many of you fast? Okay, I didn't see many hands go. <laughs> it's going to be interesting when we get to fasting. We'll look at that. Well, what this does is it causes people to be unveiled, quite frankly, as hypocrites. Can't say it any other way. They're exposed as hypocrite, hypocrites when they give with the wrong heart motivation. When they do, as Christ here, and Christ judges them, He judges their heart and says, you give because you want to do it before men to be noticed, plain and simple. And it does indeed reveal that inappropriate heart motive. The Bible has a number of hypocritical examples in it. Of course, you could look at several, but I'll mention three. You talk about uh, Cain. He brought a sacrifice that was hypocritical in nature. 
as he comes and he claims to be worshiping the true and living God, but he doesn't come as God says. He holds back and he brings something else in disobedience and yet claims that he's serving God. You have even someone like Absalom who deceived his own father and putting on a front as if he was supporting David's kingdom, his kingly reign, when all the time he was plotting against him. I guess the best example, the most prevalent example, would be Judas himself. And there are others. There are others. It just means, you know, the word comes from Greek literature. You know, it's a word, uh, uh, the word hypocrite is derived from a word that literally means to put on a mask. To hold yourself out to be something that you're not. And God is always going to be a discerner of the heart in these matters. And His Word will help us look deep within. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says to us, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And here's how He says they do it in verse 2. By means of the hypocrisy of liars. We talked in just for a moment there about the destructiveness of hypocrisy and doing things for the wrong motive. Here Paul says to Timothy that the means is through the hypocrisy of liars. He says that their conscience is that they're seared in their own consciences as with a branding iron. We talked about people using this kind of deception specifically. They choose it. And that is prevalent in our society. It's used as a tool for unrighteous gain. And it can be couched as though it were some religious act, all right, or in support of some religious enterprise. We see that all around us. Even to the point, and I think, I don't know, I don't know if you struggle with this, but in trying to give, trying to assess the needs of someone, especially people who approach you on the road or on the street, because I've had a lot of experience with this. And the numbers just say, you know, the times that I've had to, the times that I found myself in a position as an officer, I actually managed a fund at one time, maybe I've shared this, where people would come up and they could get money if they were destitute. And we observed a couple of situations where we knew people were not being honest with us, so we began to, quite frankly, follow these folks and find out what was going on. And the situation uh, was so bad, and by that I mean the monies were being so misused, I had to terminate the program because we were just fueling the problem. We were just buying alcohol and, and drugs and other things for other people. I even you could, get, you could get like $5 cash. I had to change that where I said, well, I'll give them a food voucher. I'll go up on the square and get some uh, coupons or something. And they would take the coupons and go up and sell them at half price and then go buy their so, you know, you just you don't want to be a contributor to that. So when you know about that, you need to stop it. You know, you put a, put a stop to it. And we want to make sure that we're not exacerbating a situation because we are supposed to give. We're supposed to help and to support people, particularly people within our own fellowship. We're supposed to do that. That's what God wants us to do. The Bible speaks about our responsibility But we have a responsibility to be concerned about the needs of others. So when somebody wants to take this whole process and bring disgrace upon it by being intentionally deceptive 
It's a serious thing. No wonder Christ begins this by saying, beware, beware. And we should. Jesus had said earlier, he said, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the positive side of it. We'll return to this verse again in a little bit. Our righteous acts are to reflect the Lord's divine grace and goodness in our life, period. The focus should land upon Him in every respect. And he finishes this verse in chapter 6, verse 1, by saying that if you're involved in this, he says, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Your acts are not going to be recognized as godly acts. And he literally mentions and uses a word here that means reward, wages, that which you would receive for hire. And God has promised to reward the believer who serves Him faithfully. Let's move on to to verse 2 in chapter 6. He says, so when you give, now He's going to give us some practical guidelines, so when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. We can say plainly here, Christ obviously is, is trying to make a point. Anytime he repeats himself, you know, he says truly sometimes. Other times he says truly, truly. Here he repeats the whole phrase here in this second verse. But the beginning of the phrase is a bit different. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Now giving to the poor is a word that's often referred to or translated even that whole phrase as alms. We hear about giving alms. Alms literally is an act of mercy or pity, but through the centuries it came to be known uh, as specifically an act of giving to the poor. It just kind of, as words do, it just kind of morphed and transformed into that. But he says, don't sound a trumpet, and he's just using a metaphor here. He's about calling attention to one's acts with any kind of fanfare or any kind of desire to kind of advertise what you're doing. He's saying, don't do that. And it's interesting that he uses the word trumpet. You might think, well, that's practical because, you know, they've had trumpets all the way back. But you might be interested in knowing here that the offering chest in the temple during that day, they were called chauffeur chests, or often called trumpet chests. So there's a word relation there. They were called trumpet chests, and what it was... The uh, you, I guess you could picture like a box or a coffer that had a trumpet-looking item coming out of it or, or kind of looked like a, a tulip, you know, big at the top so that people could go by and conveniently, you know, throw money in or put money in. But down at the bottom, it was narrow for the obvious reason. You couldn't get your hand down in there to, to pull it all out. So that's, that's what he's talking about. That's, that's the image that they would have had when he starts talking about trumpets and so forth. And there's some historical data that would say, and and this is, and we even see this, that when somebody made a particular donation, if it was a significant donation, that they would do, 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 so that all the people in the temple there would know, somebody just gave a lot of money. Let's see who comes out of the room down there where they're taking up the money. Who was that? Okay. I guess the heart of man hadn't changed. 
We still do this today. Where, where, where was I? Uh, uh, Panda Express. I was going through Panda Express one day, and the lady said, would you like to give to something? And kids are already taking up money for Christmas. Something. I said, sure. You want to round it off? Sure. And I hear this ding, 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 ding in the back. Ding, 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 ding. We got a winner. Or if you go through Publix and you want to give, and this is a great thing, and we do this regularly. You give food or buy food or add a $5 gift certificate to the your purchase. What do they do? They pull out that little turkey, you know, a little cardboard turkey, and they want to write your name on there and put it up on the wall there. Okay. What is it about the heart of man that is just antithetical to what God is saying here? He's saying... Later, he's going to say, do it, do it in secret. Do it for the right reason. Don't even go there. In fact, he says, beware. Beware of that attitude that makes you want to be seen for your goodness. In this case, for your giving, for your religious acts. Be careful about that. Don't, don't do it. Now, this got into, as we said, and as we've said all along, um, this the teaching of the rabbis and so forth through tradition. There's some information here from some of the uh, apocryphal books for the Jews. There's one that's Tobit 12, verse 8. I don't even know what that is, but I make that reference here. And this is what it says in that verse. This is what the Jews had been taught. It is better to give charity than to lay up gold. Why? For charity will save a man from death. It will expiate any sin. Just the act of giving It's part of what was being taught. Or from another book, the Wisdom of Sirach, chapter 3, verse 30 says, As water will quench a, fi- a flaming fire, so charity alone will atone for sin. So now you can see what Christ is dealing with here. Okay, These are things that they had been taught, things that they believed. And it's not just limited to the Jews. Pope Leo the Great, Catholic Pope, of course, he said this, and he's going to, he's got this very verse or this passage in mind uh, which talks about prayer, fasting, and alms. Or the order is, what was it? Uh, alms, prayer, and fasting. But he says this By prayer, we seek to appease God. By fasting, we extinguish the lust of the flesh. And by alms, by giving, we redeem, get it? We redeem our sins. So this wrong thinking is not just from the, from the Jews of that day, but it's uh, Catholic dogma as well. So we see that. Augustine said this, Other vices bring forth evil works, but this brings forth good works in an evil way. Christ would say, don't let your good works, don't let the good things that you do be evil spoken of. They're to be done in secret in this case. And if they are discovered, it's to be noted Uh, that your motivations are pure. He adds that they have their reward in full. And I only mention it here because it's specific language. It means it's it's like a commercial transaction. It would be the same words that they would use. It's a done deal. Ain't nothing else coming. There's no reward. There's no... Done. You got your reward. Are you happy with it? 
Okay, you got noticed. That's what he's saying. That's your reward, period. God is a discerner of the heart. It's just as wrong to appeal to wrong motives as to have wrong motives. Jesus says it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but he says, woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And that's just a reminder to us. We wouldn't want to be a part of any enterprise that would set up a situation for a purpose uh, or for a person to be deceived in this way, if you, if you follow that. I remember one time, uh, for some reason, a particular event popped into my mind way back when I was an officer at Cobb, and I remember there was a duty or something that we had to go do that involved a, a stand-up and having to deal with questions from the public. I don't remember specifically what it was. I just remember nobody wanted to do it. But what I remember was somebody in the group said, well, let so-and-so do it. They love it. If, if they're going to get to stand up in front of somebody and talk, and yeah, yeah, they'll do it. And I, I thought about that. We had at least one person who would do the right thing for the wrong reason, I guess you could say. And it reflects the heart of man, this desire to be in the limelight. What? Let's ask a, a practical question here. What's missing in a person's life in order for them to, to perceive that they have this need that must be met? That need being that they must be elevated in some fashion before their friends, before their co-workers or whatever. What's that about? In a nutshell, insecurity, which is an umbrella that points to a, a number of issues within a, in a person that, that could be addressed. And I want to begin by saying that there's great liberty, a great freeness, if you will, and not having to do that. And knowing that Christ and His sovereignty and His promises and His provisions that we just wallow in, He's going to take care of us in every fashion. Every fashion. We must be willing to take a back seat. As our teacher said yesterday at the men's conference, we've got to be those kind of people that get excited over the success of somebody else. And seeing the hand of God work, God will not forsake us. I tell you, this is a very much a part of the, the growth of our own faith. We don't have to do that. We're just encouraged to prepare and to do well. As he says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 17, I think 23, in, in some fashion, that whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. He adds, do it unto the Lord and not unto men, and God will bless it. And if He recognizes you, then you give the honor and glory to Him. Because He can't use us if we're wrongly motivated. At least not in our fullness. He can't do it. So, He's made preparations for that, for us. How am I doing? Great. Look at verse 3 of chapter 6. But when you give to the poor... Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know, when, as Christ is saying that, and once again, I, we're going back and we're listening. I'm, I'm picturing myself on the front row there. He's, he's talking, you know. He's probably standing up the hill a little bit for me. And I got there early, you know, just like I did the men's conference so I could get a rock up front so I didn't have to turn my head, you know, and look at the guy. I'm just looking head on and... He says something just very practical. Don't let your, what? Left 
your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's a kind of a common thing to say to someone, but a, but a good example. Because as we said what, a couple of three lessons ago, that most people were right-handed. The right hand was the hand of action. The right hand was the hand that, that, that greeted. It did all these things. It signed. It did all the things that were truly important. The left hand being just one of support. And his analogy is that even within your own body, okay, that specific, that's, he's going back and saying, just like he did before when he said beware, he's saying take note of this. Here's you a practical example. Don't let one hand know what the other is doing. Or as he says, the left hand know what your right hand is doing. This is important. And again, note, he, he adds, when you give. And the, and the word usage here indicates that it's not if you give, it's understood that as believers, as Christians, we are to give, that it's going to happen. It's indicative of compassion within the heart of the believer. I was reminded of an old uh, pastor that I had year, years and years ago and just learned to love, such a great man of God, a guy named K.B. Robertson. I'm sure I've mentioned him before. He's long dead and uh, buried over here at the Sandy Plains Baptist Church Cemetery. But I remember him preaching very, very heavily one day. Y'all remember K.B. Robertson? Can y'all remember him? Some friends from a former church. But he said this, and I remember he said it with such passion, it was so simple. He said, a Christian without compassion is a contradiction. And I just remember the hush that went over the congregation when he said that. Now we got a lot to be thankful for. We got a lot to be compassionate about. We can be compassionate because a great, great compassion has been extended to us. And Christ's love for us and the grace of Him, Him in our life, that is our motivation. So why would we dare bring attention to any motivation for giving apart from that which Christ and the Word of God has initiated in our life? It's like we're stealing from Him. We don't want to do that. Scripture or this particular scripture is indeed a guard against selfish pride. Giving is to be done spontaneously. Let me move through these quickly. Giving is to be done as simply and directly and discreetly as possible. There's to be no attention to personal acts. No public spectacle. No self-congratulations. Certainly not to the degree where somebody wants to set themselves up as some sort of spiritual celebrity. Whether the recipient is grateful or not doesn't even matter. It's not of consequence. We're to give with compassion. We're to give humbly. Our motivation is love for God and the desire to help others through our service for Christ. And then lastly in verse 4, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Once again, He speaks of a reward. And some information that I found here, this is a quote from uh, MacArthur Commentary. He said, It is said that there was a special out-of-the-way place in the temple where shy, humble Jews uh, could leave their gifts without being noticed. 
Another place nearby was provided for the shy, poor people who didn't want to be seen asking for help. And the name of the place was called the Chamber of the Silent. And I mention that only to say that the hearts of people, they haven't changed. People still have the same needs. And the religion of that day even recognized that and made some uh, accommodation for that. Our giving, as he was teaching here, and the heart of giving is to be in secret. And he says, it preserves your reward. It should be our desire. Now, Quarles, when I was reading him, and I often refer to him, he says there's significant evidence to show that it's no uh, happenstance that the word Father is used here and not God. And he says he's doing that to make a point, that it's deliberate. And he wants to draw a parallel uh, between a child seeking to please his earthly father. And we see our heavenly father over us, watching what we do, examining our heart, uh, and calling us to examine our heart. Our desire is to receive His approval, our Heavenly Father, to receive His approval, and certainly not that of men or that of the world. And But again we say, and we've already read and I'll read it again, not, not all righteous acts are to be done in secret, that people are to see, to, if they are taking note, if they're examining our life, then what they see must be genuine. It must be obvious that it's directed at the cause of Christ, for Christ. And again, the verse from Matthew 5.16, Let your light so shine before men that they'll see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So you say, well, what makes the difference here? It's the condition of the heart. The condition of the heart. Because God does not need our gifts. He's totally sufficient within Himself. The need is on the part of those that we serve in His name. Our Christian examples of of love in action, they are and always will be a testimony to the world. The world needs to be able to see that. But it must be genuine. It must be genuine. Now I've got seven principles, and we can end here by kind of focusing on the New Testament. Seven, I'll try to make them short and quick, principles about non-hypocritical giving. This is what the Scriptures teach us. Giving from the heart, first of all, is investing with God. Luke 6.38 says, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. There is a spiritual economy, okay? There's a way in which God, as we've seen, rewards us. Don't think in terms of money. Think in terms of your faith being built. Think in terms of your character being adjusted and tweaked so that you can bear up, so that you can be patient with people in your ministry where you need to be patient, so that you can see and discern through the impact of God's Word what people truly need when you're trying to minister to them. God will give you that insight. That's just one example. But it is God's enterprise. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 is how, Now this day he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. There are some principles uh, 
in place here. Would you agree? Secondly, genuine giving is to be sacrificial. And we'll have to go, I think, to our best reference here to 2 Samuel 24, 24, where David said, For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. I'm not just going to give that which is of no value. That was the attitude of many of the Jews with the sacrifice, you remember. They had specific guidelines. It must be a lamb, what? Spotless and without blemish. It was the best. And again, a reflection of the heart. Giving God our best. David knew it was personal. He said, I'm not going to give God something that didn't cost me anything, that in its essence is worthless, at least in my mind. There's no worship in that. Thirdly, responsibility for giving has no relationship to how much a person has, has none. Generosity is an expression of the heart. It's either there or it is not there. Plain and simple. Luke 16.10 would say, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. It's more an evaluation about what you are inside. Material giving, fourthly, correlates to spiritual blessing. Luke 16, 11, If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will trust the true riches to you? Fifthly, giving is to be personally determined. Personally determined. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Isn't that the way we want to give? Righteous giving is accomplished through a giving heart, not from legalistic percentages or quotas. We're to give sixthly in response to a need. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 3 through 5, For I testify that according to their ability... And beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us, listen, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And these are poor people who are begging to be a part of the collection, Paul says. Because it's an act of worship. It's giving. It's rich, it's real, and it's being done for the right reasons. Verse 5, he says, In this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. Is this not the key? Doing the right thing for the right reason. They gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And this reflects on the heart of people who are totally sold out for the purposes of the gospel. In this case, in spreading the gospel, meeting the needs of other Christians who were in dire straits. Giving demonstrates love, not law. That's the seventh one. It demonstrates love and not law. The New Testament contains no commands for specified amounts or percentages of giving. Giving must be from the heart, motivated by love for God and man. In Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, Four good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That verse just highlights the fact that we give because that's what we're designed to do under that broader umbrella of doing good works, and in some cases, good works that are identified and observed by others. It should be obvious 
that it's all being done for the right reason because of Christ. So closing our greatest reward in this life is just simply the knowledge, whatever we're doing, the knowledge that we have pleased God even in our benevolent acts of giving. Let's pray together.